three, as you know, Job curses the day of his birth. <laughs> How this ended on February the 5th, I do not know, but I think there's some divine providence to this. Uh, but it is true. Job curses his birthday in Job uh, chapter 3. Um, so uh, I, I'm not cursing my birthday. I called my mother last night, and I said, who's 89 years old. And I said, Mom, you know, this was, you were kind of in pain about 58 years ago. And she said, yeah, I remember I stoked the furnace before I went to the hospital. <laughs> I was born at 8.56 in the morning, so I'm not yet 58. I'm still 57 for a few more minutes. Uh, but that was Eastern time, so uh, it will be soon. Well, let's turn to Job 3, and uh, thank you for your rousing singing uh, for my birthday. That was really, really encouraging today. Uh, and, and just to remind you where we've been, Job has, Job has suffered greatly. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is really good for us because what I've discovered in, in my conversations with so many of you who have had severe sufferings in your life is that I, I learned so much as you share your life with me. And you have learned so much through your suffering. And we all do. Uh, there's nothing like the sufferings of life that kind of knocks sense into us and gives us real uh, perspective on things. And uh, I want to say, although I've, I've had some very sad things happen in my life, I mean, even this past week, my, my mother called me. And she was crying so hard she couldn't tell me why she called. And she was mad at herself. She couldn't collect herself. And so I cracked a few jokes to make her start laughing. And finally she could kind of get a hold of herself. And, and then she said, you know, told me my childhood best friend, our next-door neighbor, had been murdered on Friday night. And uh, in the little town I came from, that's, that's rare. And, and uh, you know, I just thought of all the sorrows, you know, of his family, two sons and and then I remembered back when I was 12 years old and his dad, uh, you know, one of my parents' best friends had, had died in a private plane accident and all the tragedy that came upon that family. I just thought about the sorrows upon sorrows. And unfortunately, my friend is a strong believer. He's even stronger now, by the way, than he was a few days ago. And, uh, but just thinking about the sorrows that come in life and how uh, they've helped shape me. And yet I have to say, that compared to some of the sorrows that you've had in life, I know I don't, I don't understand. And the problem with deep sorrow, as you know if you've been in it, is that nobody really does understand unless they've been there in as deep a sorrow as you've been. So when you lose, when you lose a wife uh, to cancer or to an accident or you lose your child, of all things, I think the last thing any of us would want to have to do is to do what some of you have done, and that's to stand at the graveside of a child. It just is one of the most unnatural things. They're supposed to stand at our gravesides, not vice versa. Uh, some of you have had massive financial collapse in your life, and you know uh, what happens with that. Some of you have had experiences where you feel like you just really lost your reputation uh, in the community, and the profound sorrow of that that causes you to ask some of the questions that we don't even ask when we're not suffering. But it's through your sufferings and mine as small as they may be, that uh, we are led to ask the key questions that bring out the key mysteries of what we believe. And that's what's happening in Job's life. What's interesting as we transition now from Job 2 to Job 3 
is that in Job 1 and 2, with all the severe suffering that Job had, his words were few and they were very wise. And he shows tremendous patience. And James even picks up on this and uses Job, as we saw previously, as an example of a very patient man. Job's guests, his friends, do a very good job because they keep their mouths shut for seven days. But now when we come to Job 3, Job 3 is going to show us what we call Job's lament. And so now finally some of the bitterness and the anger and the hurt and the sorrow and the deep, deep darkness of what he's going through began to unfold for us and we see what he's really feeling and what he's thinking. And fortunately, God gave Job intellectual gifts and literary gifts so that he could at least describe it in some measure for us. And it's very helpful because if you've suffered anything close to what Job did, you know some of these feelings and some of these thoughts and some of the theology that comes out of your uh, mouth uh, during that time. And then we get into Job uh, chapters 4 through 27. We're going to study, believe it or not, all those chapters next week, 4 through 27. And what that is, that's three rounds of going back and forth between Job and his friends. And if you would, read Job 4 through 27 before next time because obviously we're not going to read it in here. So if you'll read it before you get here, then we can look at some of the highlights of that whole section where they're going back and forth. And we'll see the nature of Job's uh, arguments and the nature of their arguments and the problems with either of them, but some of the keen insights that come to us in this round of discussion. But we begin today with Job's lament because Job now in some ways turns from what is very solid theology, a very commendable uh, faith, to some of the deep questioning, some of the deep depression that takes place when suffering hits us. And I think it's, it's encouraging. Even though it's dark, it's encouraging because it shows us uh, that when we've had those feelings ourselves, well, we're not alone. This is, you know, this is 4,000 years old. Uh, people have been suffering like this for millennia. And we have encouragement that we're in the community of the suffering. And we'll also see that just as there's a solution for Job, there's a solution for us, no matter how deep our suffering is. So with that, let's read Job's lament, Job chapter 3, and then we'll, we'll try to pick out of it those things that are meant to be useful for us in, in our day. Job 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish. And the night it was said, a boy is born. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For I did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? 
Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins, with rulers who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave driver shout. The small and the great are there, and the slave is freed from his master. Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in, for sighing comes to me instead of food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Okay, let's all go to work and have a good day. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you, Sandy Wilson. All right. What do you do with this? Gentlemen, we're going to enter in. We're going to enter into it. Because there's coming a day, and it's not going to be too long from the looks of it. Because I seem that my, since I celebrated my 43rd birthday when I came here, uh, <clears throat> when my hair was not gray, and I've changed a whole lot, it's not too long for me when we're going to face that extreme loneliness of facing death. And when you face it, uh, based on the testimony I've had from people who have faced it and tell me about it, nobody can go with you. And I don't care how long you've been married and how sweet she is to you, she can't go with you either. And she can hold your hand, but she can't go with you through the veil. You go by yourself. And on this side of the veil, it's a very lonely experience. And we may as well get ready for it. And that's life's darkest moment in one sense. But there are dark moments that lead up to it. And Job certainly has one here. It's so dark, he says he would prefer to die. And I don't know if you've ever been that bad off, but I've been around a lot of you when you were. I, I had, uh, I remember a friend of mine who was a missionary. And uh, he didn't know it when he went to the field, but he was bipolar, manic depressive. And he had one of his depressive states on the field, and they had to haul him out of there in a fetal position. He comes back to the States. I go visit him in, in the hospital. Uh, and he, this was before he was diagnosed. They did not know what was wrong with him. And here's this guy with a fabulous sense of humor who's very bright and witty and all the life has just been sucked out of him. And he's nothing but tears and snot. And he just wants to die. And he says his greatest struggle is not to take his belt and hang himself in his room by that belt. He said, that's my greatest struggle every day is not to take my own life. And he can hardly talk. 
and I'm looking at my dear friend who is witty and humorous and intelligent and so much fun and life had just gone from him. It's amazing how when we face life's struggles, life turns very dark and some of the most basic questions in life come to the fore. Now, he's, he's been diagnosed and for many years now, he's been in good health and he's very witty and sharp and bright and doing very well again. But I'll never forget those moments when I just saw the absolute transformation of a man. Here you see it with Job, a man who had ten children, a man who had one of the greatest estates in all of the East, one of the most powerful men in the world, and now he's turned to an ash heap, and he's asking these amazing questions. Well, let's look at this in three categories. I think poetically, you can even see it in your NIV, how it kind of divides into three stanzas. And let's look at this poem in its three stanzas. I think the first, the first stanza is really about this, that when suffering deeply, we curse what we can curse. That's how bad it is. The curses come out of us. I remember um, as a young Christian uh, and young man, reading uh, several books by C.S. Lewis, I, I, I found it so uh, interesting and clever and sharp and arresting. And I got a hold of his book, A Grief Observed. How many of you have read A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis? Several of you have. Uh, I was shocked. I remember as a, as a new Christian, I was thinking, this man sounds like a, a non-Christian. <laughs> what he was doing, A Grief Observed. He was letting us observe his grief when his wife died. Her name was Joy, Joy Davidman. And uh, when she died, it was as though Lewis's life, everything just went out of it. And he let us observe his crazy thoughts. And I remember being shocked that someone who's genuinely converted can get that close to insanity, that close to unbelief. In fact, I, I wonder in a couple of paragraphs if he went over the cliff. I think maybe he did. And he was letting us observe what really happens to a believer when life's deepest sorrows overwhelm us. And here with, with Job, we're finding that this one who, who was committed not to curse God was looking around for something to curse. <laughs> you know, he couldn't curse God. But... He was going to curse something. So we notice, first of all, he curses the day. Now, birthdays are usually happy affairs. I mean, I'm having a good one today. Uh, and my mom and I both enjoyed talking about it last night. I mean, we both consider my life fun. You know, I think my mom likes me. Uh, and generally, you know, you've been there 58 years. and You've got a lot of things to think about. Uh, in the past, you just celebrate, and people are generally glad you're around. But notice that Job just wants to curse the very day of his birth. You know what mom and I last night were laughing about, and she considers, a, you know, my dad was on business way up in, uh, way up in the upper Midwest on, on this day 58 years ago, and he was determined to be in town by the time I was born. Well, great job, Dad. So he gets there, you know, at night, uh, you know, the day I was born just to be there with mom. In those days, that was heroic. Now, of course, we're sitting there in the labor room. Come on, honey, you can do it. Uh, uh, so we're thinking about all these great memories. That Job, Job doesn't look at it that way at all. Curse 
the day that I was born. He says, may it not be included in the days of the year. May we go from February the 4th to February the 6th. Let's just cancel February the 5th, he's saying. And those who take months out of the calendar, just take February out of it. That's what he's saying. That's how bad he's, he's looking at his life. And then in verses 6 through 10, he curses the night. That night, may thick darkness seize it. Job takes his considerable intellectual and literary skills and in a sense, he applies them to foolishness. The one who is said to be patient becomes very impatient. The one who, is, who has said such wise words in Job 1 and 2 now speaks near idiocy. What has happened? Well, what Job is showing us is that Yes, there's this faith at the upper level of one's thinking, but then there's a reality of the darkness that settles in our souls and He's letting us in to His own heart. And this is really what happens. And I'd like to make some observations about this if we could. First of all, faithful men experience profound pain. And if you think that your faith is going to shield you from the reality of pain, just like the next door neighbor, no matter what his or her faith is, you've got another thought coming. There's a sense in which our faith opens us up to even more pain. Because we believe in God who orders all things. And we believe that He has adopted us as His sons. And therefore, our expectations have gone up about how life is going to, life is going to treat us. Because God's in charge of life and He loves us. So we're expecting great things for Him. So we go with open arms and then wham, we hit the brick wall. Instead of being cynical and being on the defensive and thinking negatively about God or life, we, we generally think positively about life because of who He is. And then we end up with these severe sufferings. So the first thing I would observe is the obvious, that faithful man, Job was a faithful man. He was a righteous man. He was a blameless man in that sense. They experienced profound pain in life. Secondly, faithful men express real feelings. So we wouldn't say Job was more faithful because he kept it all to himself. No, faithful men actually say what they're thinking in the appropriate place with the appropriate people. And Job is expressing the darkness that's in his heart. And when we find a brother with whom we can speak, a friend with whom we can talk, it's appropriate for us to find us a place that is safe. In Job's case, it turned out not to be all that safe except for the fact that God was listening in and God cleared it all up eventually. But we're to look for a place where we can express our real thoughts. And you'll find this true. For example, hold your finger there and go over to Jeremiah chapter 20. Uh, this is on page 1234. 1234. And here, Jeremiah has been put in the stocks by the government because he's prophesying bad things against Israel. They don't like it. The king doesn't like it. And Job is expressing some of his hurt and pain. And look at verse 14. Does this look familiar? Cursed be my birthday. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me 
not be blessed. In other words, don't make, don't make it a holiday. <laughs> Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. Where do you think Jeremiah is getting this? Job. Why? Jeremiah is learning from Job how to lament. And in your sorrows, you've got to learn to express it. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning, a battle cry at noon. For he did not kill me in the womb with my mother as my grave, her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? Well, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, learned how to lament. And if you'll just turn over a few pages from there to Lamentations, this is a lament by Jeremiah at Jerusalem's lowest point. And God gives us the song to sing when you're at your lowest point. That's what laments are all about. And you'll find them throughout the Scriptures. Evangelical Christians don't know how to lament very well. Because we're happy, happy, happy all the time. We consider that to be the mark of our faith. And joy certainly is a mark of the faith. But there's a minor key that sometimes we leave out. The Bible doesn't leave it out. And Jeremiah shows Jerusalem how to lament when their city is destroyed, their women and children are killed, and people's eyes are being gouged out while the rest of the nation looks on by these bloodthirsty Chaldeans. And look what he says in Lamentations 3. This is page 1296. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. Now, let's just stop a moment before we keep reading that. Hang on, we're going to read a good bit of the rest of this. But who is he that Jeremiah is talking about? It's the Lord. Now look at the... You see for the believer how deep the lament goes? It's not just that my mother died. It's not just that I lost my wife. It's not just that I lost my son. It's not just that my business collapsed. He did it. You don't find in the Bible any of this foolishness that God withdraws His hand, doesn't have anything to do with it, don't blame God because He's not responsible for it. You don't find any of that foolishness. In all of the laments, you find God as the culprit. There is a clear underlying assumption that God is sovereign over all things, including our sorrows. So be done with the ultimate foolishness that there is no sovereign God. The fool says there's no God. And the real fool says God has nothing to do with this. The wise man who's trying to figure it out at least starts with what he knows. God is sovereign. And God is good. And I can't figure out how those two things go together. That's what the wise man does. He knows those two are true. God is sovereign. And God is good. But I can't figure it out. So here in the lament... You have God being charged with these things. 
And the reason is that we know that he's sovereign. Now look at this, verse 4. He has made my skin and flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. Gentlemen, this may seem like very ungodly language, but if you had been in Jerusalem and seen what these people did to these women, ripping their wombs open and taking children and dashing them against the stones and felt the, the horror and the anger and the bitterness and the gall that comes from this, you would realize that this is not; these are not the words of a crazy man. He pierced my heart, verse 13, with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mocked me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. He has broken my teeth with gravel. Ooh, get that image in your mind. He has trampled me in the dust. I've been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone. And all that I had hoped for the Lord. Now look at this turn in his thinking here. I remember my affliction and my wondering. The bitterness and the gall. I well remember them. And my soul is downcast within me. Yet. Now look at that wonderful word. Yet. Yet this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for Him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in Him, to the one who seeks Him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to one who would strike him. And let him be filled with disgrace. For men are not cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. To crush underfoot all prisoners in the land. To deny a man his rights before the Most High to deprive a man of justice, would not the Lord see such things? Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Where did he get that? From Job. Why should any living man complain when punished for his sins? Let us examine our ways and test them. And let us return to the Lord. And so on. Let's stop there. Jeremiah has learned 
from Job to explore and to unfold and to reveal and to express the deep darkness that goes on in the soul. He has also learned from Job, Job 1 and 2, that God is afflicting us and this is a bitter experience. But let us wait for the Lord. Because if God is sovereign over my sufferings, He's also sovereign in seeing every form of injustice perpetrated against me. Does He not see it? Can we not wait for Him? So in the mystery of Jeremiah's tears and sorrow, deep suffering, he knows this, that our theodicy says, wait. That God's justice is validated over the end of time and the fullness of time and eternity. And it cannot be figured out in the given moment itself. We must wait patiently for the Lord. And when our words of wisdom turns to words of foolishness is when we expect to understand everything in this moment. Because you cannot understand this moment without the context of eternity and without the context of the end of life. That's what Job and Jeremiah eventually come around to. But notice, now back to Job 3, in our observation here, that faithful men do express the darkness as part of the whole process of learning from what God has for us in our sufferings. And, of course, you see it uh, with this other text that's mentioned here, Matthew 27, 46. You know what that is? When the Lord Jesus is on the cross, how do you explain? What do you say? When you have lived a perfect life, you never disobeyed your parents. You never wounded another soul. When all you did was heal people and teach them the, the unfettered truth, and you, from your heart, consistently and perfectly loved your neighbor as yourself, and when your whole life was devoted to the will of your father, and you end up naked, cursed on a tree, what sense can you make of this? What does Jesus Himself on the cross do but rummage through the songs of lament in the Bible? He goes to the Scriptures Himself while He's on the cross. He's, he's scrolling through all the truths that He knows from the Bible. He goes right to the Psalm of Lament. He goes to, the, to, to David in Psalm 22. And He pulls out a verse. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? It's a question that seems to have no answer. And yet it's the Lord Jesus Himself expressing His true sorrow in the darkness, the darkest moment on the face of the earth. All the sin borne by Him who was perfect in the greatest act of injustice ever perpetrated in the world. What sense can you make out of it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is exactly what David felt. And it's what Job is feeling. And it needs to be expressed. And Jesus expressed it when he was suffering. So I think we should express it. We should learn to express lament. But notice, I'd like to observe thirdly, that faithful men exemplify godly restraint. So it's not as though we have this, you know, go out in, into the woods and 
you know, shout obscenities, you know, and all these things that some of these psychological treatments suggest, you know, just get it out, you know, pour it all out. It's not that. In fact, there is severe discipline when we express the darkness of our souls. And here's the discipline. You'll notice that Job chose the object of his curse very carefully. He did not curse God. He did not curse himself. He did not curse his friends. And to my amazement, he didn't curse his wife. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't curse her. She told him to curse God. He had, you'd think, well, he'd curse her. He didn't curse any of those people, nor did he curse God. He picked his curse very carefully. He cursed the day he was born. Cursed his birthday. Now, there's some, there's some foolishness to this. But there's a great amount of wisdom that he took the darkness of his soul and he, he, he restrained it. He put it under restraint. And you'll, you'll notice in Job's uh, discourses how restrained he is. He, he's not right on target completely, but there's tremendous restraint there. So I would say to you that the seven day of silence may be very helpful. It's not as though you're not going to express the darkness of your suffering, the darkness of your soul, but you're going to get a grip on where the boundaries are. And you're not going to curse God. You're going to say, God, you did this in that sense. God, you're sovereign over these things, but you're not going to curse him nor anybody else. So there is godly restraint at the same time that there is a full expression of the darkness in our sufferings. And I, I think that we're not going to find help until we learn how to do this to know that we are experiencing pain along with others in this world. We're going to express it, and we're going to express it appropriately. Now, secondly, let's come to the second stanza here. When suffering deeply, we question the value of life. We question life's value. And, you know, something that just seems to be a given, no longer is given. And we really wonder, you know, with Hamlet, to be or not to be, that's the question. And I'm wondering which is really better. And I've got some arguments that say that it's better not to be here. That's, that's what happens when we're suffering. And the first question you see that Job is asking in verses 11 through 15, why was he not stillborn? Why did he not just stay in his mother's womb? There's a sense in which you could almost argue here that he's saying, why wasn't my mother killed? And I just died right there of lack of oxygen in the womb. Uh, because he, he has a certain logic to his argument. If you notice in verses 11 through 15, he says in verse 13, for now, I'd be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest. So I'd have peace. I'd have sleep. <laughs> you know, if, when you get up at 5.30 in the morning for amen, you say, you know, sleep's a valuable thing. That alarm goes off. I like sleep. I like peace. I like rest. And then he says there would be equality. That he would be living with the rich and he would be living with the poor and the slaves and that all be equal. That's basically what he's saying. There would be an equality there. First time, finally. And when I die, social justice will take place. <laughs> I mean, you can see there's a... There's a decent argument here. And then he says in verses 16 through 19, 
if I couldn't be stillborn, why couldn't I be buried alive? <laughs> why not when I was born, if I, okay, I'm born, I'm alive, I'm out of the womb, why not just go ahead and bury me alive? Wouldn't that have been better? I mean, if anybody, if they look at life realistically and they look down the corridors of time and think about all the sorrows that will occur in 58 years of life, just pile it up. Wouldn't you be better off dead right in the beginning? Just spare yourself all that pain, all that suffering, all that hard work and toil, all the disappointment, all the injustice. There's a certain, there's a certain logic here. You know what? When people go just a little crazy... They have an angle on truth. I've noticed this. When, when I have, uh, I don't counsel people who are technically crazy for very long because I'm not competent. And so I, I you know, and several of you know this, when I passed you off to the experts over at CPC, you know, <laughs> you're crazy. And you're, 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 you know, I'm, you're, you're beyond my pay scale. You know, I don't handle things like that. But when you go a little crazy on me and I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, he gets. I was just thinking that yesterday. <laughs> you, know, it's, it's, you know, it's there's a fine line between sanity and insanity. I'm telling you, there's a fine line between emotional health and emotional unhealth. Real fine line. And I've noticed that no matter how far out you get, and I'm listening to you. Yeah, I, you know this is scary, but I understand. <laughs> I have those thoughts too. And this, this guy is not far off. I've had these thoughts, haven't you? Why not just be buried alive, you know? Because he, he comes up with the advantages here. There would be a cessation of my turmoil. My turmoil would cease. There would be rest. There would be ease. There would be freedom from pain. And I want to say to you, I don't think that we appreciate these blessings like rest and peace until they are removed. And when you look at these things that Job is missing in his life, do you not notice that Jesus came to give them to us? He says, come unto me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. And when he speaks to his disciples after the resurrection, what is the most common phrase he uses? Peace. Shalom. And Job is saying, I would have had shalom if I'd been put in the ground. And shalom is so important to me. Well-being, peace, fullness of life, so important to me that when I'm deprived of it, I'd rather be dead than be alive without it. And if you've been a Christian, a disciple of Jesus for some time, you've had peace and you don't even realize what you have. You have a reconciliation with the Father because the, the Son laid down His life for you and removed God's wrath off of you and gave your soul peace. At rest, you have tranquility because things are right between you and the Father. And it wouldn't have happened without Jesus. Just take that away. And Jesus says, you'd be better dead than to face the wrath of God without a mediator. So when these things are removed, you see how terrifying life actually is. And you see how you really would rather be dead than to be alive without these things. Well, let's go to the third stanza. We have about 10 minutes here. And you'll notice that Job shows us that when we suffer deeply, we question God's wisdom. Because as we've seen, God is the sovereign one. 
He is Lord over our sufferings, and so we're wondering about Him. First of all, in verses 20 through 22, why would He give life to those who don't want it? Lord, I don't want life. I don't want to be alive. This is too miserable. Why would you give me life? I don't want it. And of course, we know the answer because God loves you more than you love yourself. And you're like a petulant child who wants to kill yourself. And the Lord is going to give you life because life is good. Even though you can't see it, He knows it is. And He's giving it to you. Psalm 88, we don't have time to read it, but normally in the Psalms, just like with lament in Lamentations 3, we go into the darkness, but we come out in light. Like, like Jeremiah said, let's wait for the Lord. It's good to wait patiently for the Lord. Psalm 88 doesn't end that way. It starts in darkness and ends in darkness. Uh, Heman, uh, actually it's literally He-Man, <laughs> the He-Man is the author, Heman. And that lament is the darkest lament in the Bible. And it's because we don't want life when we're suffering like this. And in verse 21, we see that we long for death now. In verse 22, we see we're going to rejoice in death later. So we want death now. It's, we're going to be happier when we die. So why doesn't He give us death instead of life? Secondly, we ask this question. If God's going to give us life, why would He give life to those that He also hemmed in? If He's going to give us life, why doesn't He give us the ability to enjoy life? He gives us life and breath. Our hearts are pumping. Our lungs are working. And we're completely hemmed in. We can't function. And I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever been in this state in life. But if you've really suffered, you find you are completely hemmed in. If you've been overwhelmed with darkness of grief, if that's ever happened to you, you feel like life has just shrunk in on you. And you are hemmed in by the Lord. It's very interesting if you compare in verse 23 where he says, God has hedged in. That's the same phrase he uses in verse 10 of chapter 1 where God has hedged us in and protected us. And now the very thing that God has done to protect us becomes the very thing that curses us. And God is protecting us from something, but it feels like we're all hemmed in. And we're just very frustrated children. We see in verse 24 that our sorrows become like our food. Instead of eating food and drinking water, we're eating sighing and we're drinking groans. It, life is just full of sorrow. And instead of having nightmares and then waking up, we're living our nightmares. Our nightmares become our reality. What I feared in the darkness of the night, in my worst dreams, what I feared has come upon me. And what is it? Here he picks it up again. No peace, no quietness, no rest, only turmoil. God, why did you give me life in the first place? I don't want it. And you insisted on giving it to me anyway. And I'm all hemmed in. And I don't have any of the blessings of life. All right. Let's make some observations. First of all, faithful men focus primarily on one thing. Now, why do I say that? Let's notice what Job is not complaining about. He's not complaining that he lost his health. Now, he does, but not here in this, in this chapter. It's not the core of what he's complaining about. 
He's not complaining that he lost all of his money. He's not complaining that he lost his ten children. He's not complaining that he has a complaining wife. He's complaining about one thing. It's the loss of his spiritual estate, not his physical estate. It's the loss of the benefits of his relationship with God. What he's ultimately complaining about is that God seems to have abandoned him. And you can find out from a man's chief complaint what he chiefly values and what he deeply believes. And that's the reason for Job's complaint is precisely because he was a righteous man who loved the Lord. And it seems as though God has removed all of the insignia of sonship from Job. That's Job's deepest sorrow. And I have to say, that's the deepest sorrow of all. And that's the reason it's important for us to understand how our sufferings work, why they're there, and what God's role in it is, and what our hope ultimately is, so that we do not move into spiritual despair and think that God has abandoned us. The worst thing you can ever do in your sufferings is to assume that God has abandoned you. He may mystify you. He may, he may puzzle you. He may stupefy you. But He hasn't abandoned you. So, first of all, faithful men primarily are looking for one thing. And that's the reason that when Jesus was on the cross, this was His complaint. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't the nails in his hands or in his feet. It wasn't the shame of being put up naked in front of Israel. It was that his God had abandoned him in his experience. That's the way it felt. Notice secondly that faithful men grow in wisdom through suffering. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we are told in Hebrews 2, learned obedience through what He suffered. Jesus Himself learned through His suffering. And what's really interesting here is that whereas Job seems to have wisdom obscured by His suffering, actually has wisdom established through His suffering. Where Job thought that he had lost his spiritual estate through his sufferings, Job actually rediscovers his real spiritual estate. Where Job seemed to be a fool in cursing his birthday instead of singing happy birthday, Job actually came to understand God's blessings more than he would ever have understood it before. Where Job thought that God had abandoned him and went through the valley of the shadow of death, Job comes out understanding the presence of God in a way he never would have understood without his sufferings. Where Job is going through a virtual crucifixion, he comes to understand the power of God's resurrection. Where Job was experiencing the deep thorns and the cross of life, 
he will eventually see the crown and understand it all the more. When Jesus said to his disciples to get into the boat and cross over to the other side and led them into a storm in Mark chapter 4. There's a little verse in there, Mark chapter 4, verse 36, where we are told, they took Jesus into the boat just as he was. Just as he was. They thought they knew Jesus just as he was. A carpenter, a smart rabbi, a spiritually minded man. They had no idea who Jesus was until the storm came and they despaired of life and they had the gall to say to Jesus, don't you care? We're about to drown. They look at the Son of God in the eye and say to Him, don't you care? The one who died for them on a cross a few months later, don't you care? They had the gall to say that to Him in the midst of their suffering. And then he arose and he said to the wind, to the waves, be still, be quiet. Just as he spoke to the demons and they were quiet. He spoke to the wind and the waves and it was like glass. And these men had never seen anything like this before. And here's what they said. Who is this? Who stills even the winds and the waves? They went into the boat taking Jesus just as He was. And by the time they got out of that boat, they knew that Jesus wasn't who they thought He was. And that's precisely what happens to us in our sufferings. Because one day, when we see Him face to face and everything is finally reconciled, about all we're going to be able to get out is, who is this? We thought we knew Him. We studied Him in the Bible. We went to church. We read over and over again. We talked with wise people. We had no idea how great and how gracious He really is. Who for our sakes stills the wind and the waves. And one day, gentlemen, He's going to do it. And all the sorrows you've ever experienced in the deepest, darkest moments of your soul will have been merely a preparation to praise God to the top of your lungs. And He is worthy of it. Let us pray. Father, in this season of deep sorrow and suffering here in a broken world. We are often overwhelmed with the feeling that our spiritual heritage was a mirage. That it, it was just Disneyland. That it didn't really exist. And we begin to sound like foolish people with the questions that we ask you. And we're sorry for any lack of faith that comes from our questioning. But we're so grateful that in the midst of our deepest, darkest moments, You are taking us through the valley of the shadow of death because You're bringing us to a mountaintop where we shall see the fullness of Your glory and we shall see all of the heritage and lineage that You've given us coming to full fruition. Help us to wait patiently in this day. As we wait, enable us, Lord, please to express ourselves with candor and with godly restraint and help us in the midst of our wondering about why you're doing what you're doing to rediscover the depth of your love for us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.